location in Chicago, Illinois, is Shelby Mongan. Shelby, how are you? Good. I don't know why that took me so long to confirm. I am, I can confirm, am doing good. I saw like a, the, the decision timer that you get in video games, I saw that in my head, and then it got to the red part of the circle. Oh, I just pushed the good button. But I am doing well. Um, Bill will remember that. Bill will remember that. <laughs> Bill slightly approves. No, it's good. It's been a busy, busy week, but I'm excited to be here with you chatting games today. Well, great. Then let's get right to it. Just uh, as a quick reminder, So Many Bits is brought to you in part by the Second Wind Collective. For more quality podcasts like this one, please visit secondwindcollective.com for details. Hey, Shelby. What you playing? Well, Bill, I am entrenched in the middle of a massive meta head game regarding, let's be honest, one of the only video games I'm playing currently. Um... which is Overwatch. Anyone who's heard me on the show before knows this is true. Um, I have been looking at new games. I have been excited about new games, uh, but I have not been able to get my hands on anything in particular new. Um, But with Overwatch, we got a a minuscule lore drop today, um, which meant that I spent far too much time contemplating the larger-scale implications. I don't necessarily want to say more, because unless your podcast comes out in the next... 15 minutes, I will probably be proven wrong (laughs) by the time people listen to it, so I don't want to say anything, but I did get to spend a lot of time digging in, and I think it's really, um, it's one of the things that keeps me coming back to a game that is truly infuriating sometimes, is the, is the promise of this expansive, wild, interesting, ever unfolding world of lore, and so I, part of the game for me is discussing it, I found a wonderful community of folks on Discord, um, who I, we parse at length um, through lore and through past reveals and all things. And so that to me is almost like this pleasant, unplanned ARG that goes alongside this mildly irritating team shooter that I begrudgingly love. Who would you say right now is, is your main? So I have been playing um, a lot of Orissa and a lot of Mercy. Um, I've, and a lot of D.Va as well, kind of flexing around. Um, Moira hasn't been getting the playtime that I want to give her, though Lucio's been getting more. I'm still sitting in my sort of flex tank, uh, healer role. So, I have been playing Mercy. I think I've mostly been playing Mercy, because that new charity, Breast Cancer Skin, is so perfect. (laughs) It is so good, so pure, so beautiful. Overwatch Sailor Moon. I love everything about it. Um, every little detail on it is good. And so it is, it's funny. It has actually made me more interested in being willing to play Mercy rather than trying to like fit Moira into comps that don't need it or deal with being in subpar at best Anna. Um, the little touches, the sound, like the little twinkly noises when you res someone or when you fly to someone, it's just, 
it is so satisfying and beautiful, and it, it's silly because cosmetics don't actually make a difference, but this one has a changed my pick rate for her for sure, um, but I have been playing a lot of Orisa and I've been having fun kind of digging a little bit more into her her kit and her utility. So she's like a big robot mom. and uh, Robot horse mom, yep. Yeah, and so she can like do a little bit of shielding, she can shoot like a gravity bomb thing, and she's got a machine gun, but that one, that's maybe not that damaging. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a lot more for pressuring areas than straight up murder. But what I have discovered with Arisa, and I think a lot of people in the community, in the meta, and really in the pros too, you see a lot more Arisa than you did previously. Um, she was written off, I think, at first. Um, her shield was underwhelming at best compared to Winston's beautiful bubble and Reinhardt's very large and very healthy shield. Arisa's shield was sort of wimpy and sad in comparison. And her kit was okay, but people, it just, like a lot of heroes, it takes time to figure out how to use them. Um, and people are starting to get it now in her. She has such interesting synergies um, that have emerged. Her synergy with uh, Roadhog is phenomenal. She's way better on the pirate ship comps, which if you play Overwatch and follow meta, that is, she's much better on a pirate ship than Reinhardt is. And she has these really interesting pieces of the puzzle in her kit that, she fits in a way that is a lot more utility-based in, in the meta right now, and so I'm really enjoying getting a chance to play her more, um, especially in my sort of lower elo tier. She has a lot more utility than trying to run, like, a cohesive dive comp, which never works, because we're not pro Overwatch players. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, dive and pirate chips. So dive is, like, uh, based around, like, a lot of fast, uh, especially mobile characters uh, trying to, like, isolate one member of the opposing team, pick them off, and then get a numbers advantage that way. Correct me, though. Like, what was a pirate ship comp? So, pirate ship um, comes from, very specifically, um, the it, it applies in other areas, but it is the name developed from one of the newer maps in Overwatch, Junkertown. Um, in Junkertown, you are moving a cart forward that is covered in ridiculous jewels and riches as <laughs> part of Junkrat and Roadhog's plan to blow up Junkertown because they kicked them out. Um, so you were trying to drive it to Junkertown's, uh, the queen of Junkertown, to blow her up as revenge. Um, so the the sort of core, at least the core three necessary for pirate ship, is a Bastion sitting on top of the cart, an Orissa or a Reinhardt, in my case preferably an Orissa, sitting, uh, putting a shield directly in front of that Bastion on the cart, and then a Mercy hiding behind the Bastion, damage boosting and healing him and Orissa. And basically, especially in lower elos, you just get this tank that goes down and murders everything in its path because no one is very good at dealing with it because the brilliance of the comp is it needs coordination to counter, and that is not a thing when you are solo queuing in lower in the lower ranks that you get a lot of. So it can be pretty effective. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, that's... I actually, when you describe that, that is something I, I've definitely seen Reinhardt paired with Bastion. Yeah. I, I've not seen the healer component, like especially the Mercy added to that, but that makes a lot of sense. Like That is a, a pretty uh, no, easy-to-observe synergy between those characters, and at that level, it can be very difficult to coordinate. A lot of people probably aren't even using their mics, is what I guess. Definitely. Definitely true. Well, and it, it isn't hard to counter. It's just... You have to do some coordination to make it happen, yeah. rather than panic and run at the Bastion machine gun spray of bullets, which is what most people do. Um, and so it can be very effective if the other team is not 
is not together. But they call it the pirate ship because the whole thing running down with this like sail of Arissa's shield sitting on a pile of gold. It is very pirate ship esque. Um, so it's it's a real pain. It's a bit of they it's a cheese comp to some degree, but you see pros use it all the time. So it's a little cheesy, but um, they know when to abandon it, but it can get some work done for sure. When you talk about like the communication, uh, it, it makes me think of like the times where the communication does go well and the plan comes together. Like I, I have this distinct memory of there's a bastion like right on, sitting right on the point at uh, Bolskaya Industries. Okay. And we're teaming with this Reinhardt who uh, I assume just was like more well versed in this stuff, and he's like, "All right, I can charge in there and take it out, but Zarya, I need you to shield me as we're going in, or I'm not going to make it." Yep. So just uh, when I say now, hit me with the shield, and then. It just was like, bing, bang, boom. Yep. Like, took out the bash and everybody rushed in, and it was great. That communication is really, um, is, that is the stuff. Those games are the reason that I play the game. Like, that is the stuff that makes the infuriating games worth it. Because um, that is the most fun. And actually, uh, we're getting endorsements soon, which means that you can not only report someone if they're terrible... But if they're great, you can endorse them for being a great shot caller like that Reinhardt was or being a good teammate or being a good sportsman. Even on the other team, you can actually nominate. If someone was really nice in the chat or very chill, they weren't teabagging you and stuff, you can commend them for good sportsmanship. And um, there are supposedly rewards that will come with that. We don't know what yet, but some probably cosmetics and stuff. Um, But basically, when you go to someone's profile, you can see... Have they been um, endorsed by other players for being a good shot caller or a good person, like a nice teammate or someone fun to play with? Um, and there's also a new looking for game or looking for group system. It's there's been a whole lot of role queue controversy. It's not worth getting into, uh, but basically you can say I want a team with this composition, these roles being filled, and you can ask for certain things like you have to have a mic or you have to have a certain level of endorsement to play. Um, I am so excited about that happening because I think giving us the power to take more control over our game and commend people and reward good behavior, not just punish bad behavior. Um, that is going to make the game, the things like that, those moments that work really well and feel so good, that is going to make them more common, hopefully. We get more opportunities to cultivate the times where those happen instead of just hoping that you stumble onto people that aren't useless. So that... That is just, it's new news. We don't have a date for it yet. It's being tested right now in the in the test realm, but hopefully we'll get it soon, as well as a giant Symmetra rework. But that I'm excited about. Endorsements are great. I may not be great at aiming, but I'm very good at being nice. So my kind of thing. I would like to know more about that feature. Uh, let Maybe we can loop back on that in a future episode because... I would like to know like how it works in practice. Definitely. I, I can see like the appeal in principle. Yeah, it's it answers it potentially answers a lot of questions and a lot of concerns people have had for a long time. Um, and hopefully it will be at least some of the things that our hopes and dreams uh, want it to be. Have you been playing anything else? Nothing notable. Okay. Have you been playing anything lately, Bill? Yes. <laughs> Go on. I've been playing a lot of Bloodborne recently. Well, I mean, dying a lot, I think, is the tagline of the Souls-like genre, is it not? Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is... I, I've had to learn a lot of like how they make the game and why they make the game 
a certain way. Uh, so just uh, for reference, Bloodborne came out in like 2014. It's for the PS4 and only, it's a PS4 exclusive. Uh, you are this dude uh, or this lady navigating the eldritch horrors of this kind of Victorian era town with uh, a knife and a gun. As you do. Oh yeah. And uh, you're fighting a whole host of various monsters. Sometimes you might write, uh, run into like neutral people or allies, depending on uh, where you venture. And your eventual goal is uh, unclear. You're just trying to kind of like figure out the mystery of what's happening in uh, Yarnum, which is where you're located. Love it. And I mentioned it's a Souls-like game, so from your kind of just general knowledge, but also your experience so far in playing, like what... When you say that, aside from constant death <laughs> and maybe kind of gloomy aesthetic to some degree, what do you think of when we say Souls-like as a genre? That is, you know, uh, there are a few like things I associate with Souls mechanically, and then maybe a few that are thematic. So uh, mechanically speaking, uh, there is uh, like lots of one-on-one -on -one combat mm -hmm. where you are uh, able to uh, like attack and block. And then also, most importantly, roll. Like, uh, that, I mean, that's just, like, one of the key things that is, I think, sets those games apart from... Uh, tumbling. Yes. Tumbling is important. Lots of tumbling. Sure. And then uh, the idea of having one life. Anytime, or I guess technically two lives. So you have one life, and while you're going around, you essentially can defeat enemies to earn EXP that can either be converted into items or levels to increase your stats. If you die, you get taken back to the last checkpoint you reached, and all the EXP you had accumulated sits on the ground, or can be like picked up by an enemy, and you have to kill that enemy. Now, if you get back there and touch the spot where you died, or you kill the enemy that picked up your stuff, you get it back, and then you can hold on to it to either spend or lose when you die again. But if you don't make it back, or if you die before reclaiming it originally, then it's gone forever. So punishing as a genre staple, like that, that is where that mechanically comes from. Yes. Oof. Yes. And it's very, very old school in the way it approaches uh, gameplay because one of the things that has changed generally for the better over the past 30 years of video games is the death penalty for games has gone down. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you can play games now where it's like Celeste or Super Meat Boy where you're dying hundreds of times mm -hmm. while you play, but whenever you die, you just like instantaneously, you pop back in, you can pick up where you left off. It's less of like you died and more of like you hit a sharp, pointy portal that transported you to the beginning of the level again. Yes. Yeah, it's like really almost divorcing it from the idea of like death in any sense of the word now. Definitely. Here... Uh, you are meant to replay and kind of redo everything you have already done up to the point where you, you died. Like when you fight a boss, you can't just bash your head against that boss over and over again. Right. You have to go back and then like wade through the enemies that are there yeah. until you can like get really good at fighting all the enemies leading up to the boss and the boss. Yeah, that's crazy. And if you do that, you have to be careful because... The enemies are, uh, they can deal you a lot of damage really fast. A lot of them, uh, their weaknesses are based around good timing on your part and patience. Like you have to like avoid their attack and then poke them. Or you have to do a parry, which is like when you see them begin their attack, you can shoot them with the gun 
and stuns them, mm -hmm. and then you can follow up with a combo to deal a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes it'll just be as simple as, there is a guy hiding around this corner, and if you run through that area, he'll hit you with his axe. Mm -hmm. But if you know he's there, you can like run to the corner, step back, and then take him out. You just have to know that Jeff is hiding around the corner, and that Jeff is going to kill you unless we just pay attention. Jeff will be there every time. <laughs> he will never stop being there. Damn it, Jeff. But you have to remember, Jeff, the sixth or seventh time you're coming through that area. Right, right. And you have to care that Jeff will be there. You can't just be frustrated and just be like, I'm just going to take the hit and keep going. Right, because at, at that point, the way to finish those sections is to, I don't want to say get a perfect run, but essentially execute a nearly perfect run. Yes. That is, I super understand that people like that. That sounds terrible, but I love that people love that. How have you been liking Bloodborne so far, though? I have found it very tedious. Yeah, it's a lot, it seems like. Uh, so I have gotten to the point where I, I beat the first two bosses. Mm -hmm. I actually apparently did them out of order. So you can fight one of two people. One is actually kind of entirely optional, really. You don't have to encounter this boss. Hmm. You can just skip him. But I fought this guy, Father Gascoin, who is technically the second boss in the game. Okay. And he gave me a real hard time. And uh, this is another thing that is very difficult for me, is my tendency is to just, like, if I lose trying tactic A, yeah. is to go back and do tactic A again until it works. Right. And just, like, try and do it better than I did it last time. Which sometimes is one of the solutions, but it doesn't mean it is the best one you should be doing. Definitely. And definitely not for these bosses. No. They are just too punishing for you to, like, not try and mix things up, use different weapons, yeah. use different items. Uh, so with Father Gascoin, I, like, finally I started, like, really trying to do the parries mm -hmm. because he had a huge wind-up to a lot of his attacks, and you could really easily see, oh, he's about to hit me with his big uh, walloping attack here. Right. And that was finally when I broke through. And then I'm hitting it again with the next boss. I actually had a relatively easy time with the, the first boss when I went back and did that. The advantage of going out of order. And then uh, the third boss kind of factors into another somewhat old school aspect of this game. Is like I was reading up a little bit on this uh, boss. Her name is uh, Viker Amelia. Vicar? Okay. Vicar, probably. Vicar yeah. Amelia. And she has this huge uh, healing move that she can do when she's low on health. And like, she'll heal faster than you can deal her damage, and she's not, like, doing anything to defend herself. So that's pretty tough. Right. And then uh, one of the strategies is, like, oh, you can just go uh, get stronger and just, like, go and grind <laughs> against the lower-level enemies. I feel like you see that strategy, and your first reaction should be rude. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not wrong, it's just rude. Yeah, I just, I mean, they're, they're like, well, you can go and, like... Suck less. Yeah, pick up more experience, and... That is another thing where it's like in, you know, these very old school RPGs, like that was way back to Dragon Warrior on the NES. The yeah. idea was, hey, if you're not good at this game, if you go around and beat up a bunch of monsters for long enough, right. it'll be irrelevant. It'll just be a high enough level you can truck whatever you meet. If you grind, you'll be fine. Something that I accidentally did the first time that I played through Dragon Age Inquisition. Not because I was trying to grind, but just because I wanted to play all the side quests. <laughs> and then I got to the final boss that was supposedly hard, and I was like, this is easy! And then I realized I was comically over-level for the whole process. So, 
But if you're just grinding for the sake of beating something, that definitely I can see how that feels tedious. And for a lot of people, this is probably a very interesting game to play. It, it, I, I can see, I can appreciate mechanically what it's doing, and I think it's got a really good look. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of runs poorly on the PS4. Hmm. It's like a 30 frames per second, and sometimes mm. it'll be kind of like chunkier than that, depending on the uh, amount of things happening on screen. Sure. Uh I this is not my kind of game. It makes me unhappy to play this game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's tough, and it's tough because it is a genre staple, and I do feel like that that genre right now is, is a pretty significant one. And sometimes, if you are in general just interested in video games, but if you're in somewhat of a completionist mindset, that is a game that you might want to try to get further through but if you don't like it like it's also a game as someone who likes games a lot and likes to think they they play a lot of different games to know about them yeah yeah it's like i don't want to say this game is too hard but uh for me this game is too hard i think yeah that's fair that's fair or at least you could get good at it but it would be a wildly unpleasant experience yes yeah i just uh i can't play a game for like two hours in an evening and then be really irritated afterward and then like go to bed and come to work in the morning right i can't do that it needs to be a relaxing release and a escape if possible maybe satisfying maybe intellectually you know developing or or physically but not infuriating constantly (laughs) if that's at least if that's not your thing yeah so uh again as of this recording I haven't done it yet, but by the time this comes out, I will have. I just wanted to stream it a little bit just to, like, show the game off a little bit because I think it is neat, and I I wanted to kind of, in a way, I can validate my time by streaming it. I have seen some of it played, and and that is one thing that is funny to me is it's not the kind of game I am gravitated towards aesthetically or mechanically, but I will say it is very cool. Like, the themes and the look, the monsters and stuff are very, very neat. If you want to talk about lore for a game, Bloodborne has so much lore to it that I, I guess it. is like... Well, it's a lot of collecting like books and reading stuff to too to find it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that is, I mean, all about that. And there's like a, you can collect a stat or an attribute called insight, mm-hmm. which uh, the more you have, the more you can see through the illusions of the world. And if you are familiar with Eldritch Horror, you might not be surprised by what happens when you get a lot of insight. Yeah, I feel like you don't want to see the insights, like insight into the world in an Eldritch Horror universe, because it's real terrible. Oh, yeah. Speaking of which, this is a game I have not played yet, and it is, speaking of genres that I'm not interested in, but Eldritch Horror, um, have you played any of Cultist Simulator yet? No. Have you seen anything from this? No. So it is this bizarre card-based game where you are essentially trying to build an eldritch cult, eldritch cult, and you are trying to do a lot of like resource and time management um, and stuff. But what I think is funny is that it is playing with a lot of the tropes and the th- the themes of that eldritch horror genre. But it's all a bunch of like random cards, so you don't get any of that kind of like terrifying immersive stuff. Um, so maybe a little bit safer, more sterile, but also equally punishing. It's more of a roguelike card game, almost. Um, similar way to experience um, some... There, there's some similarities, 
but a very different game. I don't know, you just said Elder Tour, and this is new. I've seen a bunch about it. It looks really, really interesting. I'll just send you some gameplay or something. You might be interested. Yeah, yeah, I would be willing to take a look at that for sure. Random aside, but sometimes I just get excited. Of course. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that's all I had to say about that game. I have been playing other stuff, but you know, I, I, I need to kind of to, to ration it. And we'll, t- we'll talk about it on another episode. You just have too many cool things to say. We have to keep the people wanting more. Oh, yeah, that's exactly. Uh, so then, Shelby, yeah, we're going to move on here. But uh, before we talk about our article, there is something that we must handle. I don't know what it is. Did you? Oh, yeah. Jeez, Louise. Yeah, okay, I'll tell you. Stupid magic segment. My uh, stupid magic segment, better known as Bill's Magic Minute. That is where I talk about Magic the Gathering for exactly one minute to vent it from my system, and we get it all out of the way so it doesn't pollute the other segments. I'm not going to offer any context or explanation. We're just going to get to it. Is it going to be about the fancy lion guy that's the new pa- the new planeswalker in the set? A Johnny? I don't know. Is he a fancy lion? I can't really say. I'm not offering any context or explanation. Did I guess right? Yes. <laughs> I am queen of knowing nothing of magic. All right, your minute starts now. I had the opportunity to watch a beta Rochester draft that was held at Grand Prix Las Vegas last weekend, and it was completely unlike any magic I had seen for a very long time. First of all, because I have not seen a Rochester draft in over 10 years because it's kind of a retired format, but also because data is more or less the first set of magic cards ever produced. They were still working out some of the uh, the basics there. They had both uh, Jump, a card that gives your creature flying one time, and Flight, a card that gives your creature flying permanently. They were both one blue, and they were both in the set. But the final uh, battles went down to uh, Luis Scott Vargas, a well-known pro, playing a bunch of different uh, powerful... Uh, effects against a guy playing black green where in, 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 as just as any classic game is ended the, uh, the opponent won with a lure on a big creature I didn't hear about any lion people well maybe in another magic minute would you like we can just do one that's fine that's okay <laughs> uh, one of these days I'm going to remember that I have to time you on that segment I think you remembered on other occasions I just I drew it out here for for effect. For comedic effect. Yes. Well, Well, for effect. Yeah, effect. Yeah, that's fair. You had it right the first time. (laughs) (laughs) It's all right. I cut it down in post so it sounds snappier. Uh, So, Shelby, now we're going to move on to our final boss segment where we talk about one event, article, or upcoming game that has caught our eye. And I sent you an article earlier about a topic we have somewhat already broached, but yeah, having to investigate again. Oh yes, I was so desperate to read this. You did a great job of picking an article that is so up my alley as far as weird gaming culture situations. The article is titled How Pro Gamers Live Now, Curfews, Personal Chefs, and All of It on Camera. It was published, or sorry, written by Maddie Myers over at Compete, which is the the esports leg of Kotaku, mm-hmm. and it goes into the the lifestyle of working for a uh, a few different uh, pro esports teams. I think this one mostly focuses though on the Philadelphia Fusion. 
It does, and it spends a lot of time with um, the Immortals organization, which has had teams in uh, CSGO, League of Legends, and then they actually are the ones who run my beloved LA Valiant. Hashtag wings out. Um, so we got to talk a little bit to the owner um, of, of uh, Immortals as well. Uh, but yeah, it, it definitely kind of honed in. And what I loved about this article, what is interesting, is that esports, despite being this massive industry right now, making a lot of money continuing to grow, is still niche, is still quiet. There's still not as much transparency about things like the day-to-day living situation. Um, and so getting some glimpses into that um, is, is really intriguing um, and shows, I think, both the uh, possibility and also the youth and naivete of some of these, um, of, of esports and the way that we run it currently. Because a lot of these uh, players are just barely 18 or in their early 20s, and usually at the peak. I mean, after that, it's very, very rare to find a pro esports player in their even late 20s, let alone 30s. So these are all uh, children on their first jobs. <laughs> Quite literally children, yes. Um, the, like they mentioned, um, Indy Halpern, who is, goes by space, he's on the LA Valiant, and he turned 18 in the middle of, I think, season or Series 2, um, right around there, and was able to start playing... As soon as he turned 18. <laughs> He's not even been 18 for a full year yet. Or, well, so that would make him 19. It's been a long week. Uh, but he hasn't been 18 for very long, even. And, I mean, Philadelphia seems to paint a, a relatively a good picture of, like, how to, uh, you know, take care of these players. It's not perfect, but it does seem to offer, like, a, like a, a living situation and a Try an attempt at a work-life balance and uh, a look at like trying to make these healthy young people and not sure. just like machines uh, that are meant to be chewed up and spit out. Or completely let off the leash and allow to do whatever they want outside of their time on a team. Yeah, it is it is really interesting because I, I will be honest, especially reading about some of the stuff about Fusion, um, there are aspects that almost that felt close almost to cultish moments to me, right? These, this odd controlling of these people, this very paternal instinct, and I will say paternal because as far as I know, all if not the vast majority of the CEOs of these teams and the CEOs of the larger companies behind the teams are all men. Um, typically young, some of them younger, some of them much older, kind of depends on the situation, but um, very weirdly paternal older brother atmosphere. But um, there's a little, like, the schedules that they give them, some of the curfews and stuff, um, you can definitely tell that they're playing with a lot of younger folks. But it's an odd balance to have to strike. Like, you want to give them the freedom to grow up a little bit, to make some mistakes, to learn what's best for them and learn how to be a professional adult. But you're also controlling and providing a lot of their food, their housing situation, their social situations, their structure, especially because a lot of them maybe are potentially coming off of um, more time in the video game world and less time in the outward socializing world, maybe have been playing long, long hours, maybe has, have been streaming long hours before they got to this point. 
Um, and the effort of trying to help, at least in the Overwatch League currently, try to help these guys transition from these teams is laudable. I don't think it's all well executed quite yet, but it's definitely laudable. I, I agree. Uh, it was. It seems like a good first step, yep. but uh, it does not go far enough to protect the interests of the players, where I think a lot of them are being put in these, these high-pressure situations where they may have just be barely out of high school and they're expected to compete and win, and their livelihood is tied to them winning, mm-hmm. which is, you know... I, 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 in my brain, I try to translate it a bit to like professional, uh, like uh, baseball or football or hockey, where people of that same age are going off and being asked to do the same thing. Uh, I think, though it's not tr- universally true, there are more efforts to uh, protect those younger players because, first off, some of them, not all of them, but some of them get to make a lot more money right out of the gate. Yes. Like a truly staggering amount of money for that age. And then also, I am aware of uh, some protections that are given to these players where a lot of them have like uh, insurance policies taken out in their name to protect loss of talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are uh, kind of uh, college funds put away for them where it's like, hey, if this does not work out, you can use this money and go to college mm-hmm. instead if the whole pro baseball thing doesn't work for you. Right. And I just don't know if that same kind of protection exists for a pro Overwatch player or a pro any game where and there still are risks of mental and physical injury and and that they have to be concerned about it it's weird I, so I was thinking about the parallels to professional sports a lot um, and there are so, a lot of similarities for sure but there's some fascinating differences so for example a lot of these guys um, you turn 18 you join a, maybe a contenders team maybe uh, just an offshoot team that isn't part of the Mm. pro league yet, and then you get sort of shifted up. Um, Whereas in professional sports, a lot of those guys, maybe some dudes are joining at 18, 19, 20, but at least a lot of folks coming through American systems, so a lot of football players, a lot of baseball players, some hockey players, um, are going to college and playing college sports, so they are having some time to grow up, they are taking some classes, they are spending some time living on their own but in structured environments, transitioning from the high school space to um, adult life. And then from there they go into professional sports. In a lot of cases, not all, there's definitely lots of folks, lots of wonderkins that jump straight out, but especially when physical prowess is required, there is that sort of sweet spot between um, youthfulness and being too young and not developed enough. Um, and esports, a lot of these guys don't have that luxury of that, that middle space to practice, to train, to learn, to mature a little bit. Um, I, it's interesting to see the levels of maturity and how that can benefit a team or lack of maturity levels can harm a team. Um, like, so there are definitely kind of odd shifts there. And also you don't find a lot of teams that full time during the season live in the same sometimes building or at least apartment complex that's not necessarily how a lot of professionals some of the guys do bunk up you know you need a roommate you want someone around or you're just having folks around but it is not necessarily a requirement or a very heavy suggestion that they share a single mansion maybe one with a creepy portrait of them over the you know over the fireplace yeah when i saw that that was that looks kind of messed up cultish cultish totally but but yeah the, it, it is understandable to want to have them under one roof 
especially for the younger guys to help like structure them, to train them, to get them to socialize, get them to bond as a team, to make sure they're not staying up to streaming till 4 a.m. and then trying to go to practice the next day or staying up drinking or partying or doing whatever until 4 a.m. and trying to practice. But that is an interesting quirk. It's a part of gamer culture. It's part of professional gaming culture. Gaming houses are a thing. Um, whether they last long term is going to be an interesting question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we, we I think both said that there are some positive efforts in place here to protect the, the wellness of these players, but it might just be a total non-starter to have them in this place, in this structure, in the first, in the first place. Yeah. I, I'm erring on the side of I think it's better, especially for the younger guys. They talked in the article about how some organizations do have some freedom. Because I also couldn't help but think about what if you started dating someone? What if um, you are, you know, most of the guys, I think most of the guys in the league are still pretty young, but what if there's someone that you, uh, what if you get married or what if you are planning to get married? Do you get a weird exception? Does that hurt your chances to start? on the team does that hurt your experience are they going to accommodate you spending time with the rest of the team are they going to change the structure of stuff um that is a hard i think maybe it's a realization that the players aren't going to be there when they're terribly old maybe they're relying on their reflexes apparently failing them at 25 or whatever um (laughs) i don't know that it's almost in that sense for me that seems short-sighted and seems like it's going to make it less of a acceptable, sustainable thing if we're just watching just kids basically play and and cycle through. Actually, when you mentioned watch, that does uh, bring me to another thing that happens is a lot of the, a lot of the living in these places appears to be uh, like recorded and, and put out and disseminated on the internet. Yes, I at least, so as a Valiant fan, I have consumed a lot of the um, YouTube content that they put out, which is really great because it, it does make the team feel a little bit more approachable. Um, but they do spend some time at this like complex where the guys live, and it is, it is very cool, um, interesting, um, both as someone who is engaged and interested in this culture, but also like as someone who finds them to be interesting personalities and wants to spend time with them. But also part of me feels really uncomfortable about folks who are um, playing in front of large audiences and suffering a lot of pressure. Um, they're very, they have to be very public with that. A lot of them are streamers. Um, which we're also, this article doesn't touch on it, but we're in the midst of some like really, really massive streamer-based burnout about the time and the expectations, um, let alone folks who are streaming and playing professionally. Um, to engage, to push even further into that and have them be even more public in their sort of home life while they're during the season is, is understandable but unfortunate, I think, for their mental health. It makes it feel like, uh, which, and the article did mention this as well, that uh, these players really could benefit from a union. 100%. And it warms my heart to hear that at least the team that I root for is pro-union. Um, and there are a lot of discussions happening, but it is really interesting to hear them discuss that one of the things that we're, we might need for unions to go through um, in professional uh, esports is the retirement of the first sort of wave of people that can spend their time advocating for working on developing a union space that the younger folks can benefit from. And we're just not at that place right now. Talked about how CSGO hasn't really been able to um, have a 
long enough continual single group of people because of a schism within the, the group uh, based on software. Uh, and so we just haven't been able to see it yet. League's been around for a while, but not long enough to have a lot of prominent, like an entire wave or generation retire from esports. So um, I'm hoping that we can get some folks that will step up sooner rather than later because it's definitely going to be important to um, prevent excessive time playing and, and unnecessary unfair contracts and all kinds of stuff involved there. The uh, the pro sports unions are, are certainly imperfect, but they, and they do uh, a lot of good work. Uh, I, I wish some of them would. Ironically, with the baseball, I mean, they uh, have a whole minor league that is not part of their union, and they end up getting shafted a lot of the time yeah. in a way similar to how these Overwatch players, I believe, are somewhat exploited. So, yeah. Uh, it's not certainly not going to say that it's perfectly rosy elsewhere, but for sure, yeah, it would, it, it's a good start. It's a good start, and I think that's that's the thing that the article affirmed to me. And I I am aware that that may come from a you know a bias of the reporting, but it seems like at least more than I would have assumed up front. The people who are running the situation are aware of the pitfalls of similar things in the past, and are at least trying to provide the best experience they can. I mean, granted, yes, these kids are cash cows to them, for some, to some, at least to some degree, but they also do seem to care somewhat about them and do want this to be a sustainable and serious sport. Um, and it looks like they're trying to look out for some of the mistakes that have been made in the past. Yeah, yeah, I, I hope so. Uh, it, you know, they're it's pretty transparent to let someone come into, like, your facility and look it all over. I, I just hope that we don't find out later on that, like, things were actually the dirt worst. Because, uh, I mean, with our, uh, with the Shanghai team, uh, there have been reports there, like, training 10 hours a day, six days a week. We, yeah, which is tough. Um, does, and I don't know, it's funny, I don't know if that we can say that they have still not won a single match, um, because of that or in spite of that training as well yeah yeah it, it seems hard to believe that they those players are able to perform optimally if they're working such a grueling schedule yeah they've had a lot of interesting turnover and there's a lot of i think we're going to see to some degree some cultural differences in both how the individual players um given that almost every team is multicultural um how the players themselves as well as the organizations from different countries, especially as we hopefully will expand and get even more teams, um, how they deal with these questions of the health and the maturity and the advancement and the growth of the players and their optimal performance and their safest situation and all of that stuff. We'll see. I did. Say, I will say I was very surprised to learn how many of them are required to go to the gym. I'm impressed by that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that kind of stuff, I mean, having that kind of balance and having that good, like, physical health leads to better mental health and probably better just performance in general, so. Definitely, yeah. They're, I mean, they really are continuing to work to legitimize esports as a sport. Um, whether things like this help or hurt is a, another question, for sure. But it's, it is definitely fascinating. If you are at all interested in, like, player life, in esports, not just watching the game itself. Um, maybe you're like me and you're interested in esports, but League of Legends makes you want to vomit because there's way too much going on and you've never played it and MOBAs are hard. 
Um, that is, uh, it's an interesting article to read, 100%. Yeah, very, very deep dive. I learned a lot about the esports world, and it's, it's that it appears we don't know how it's going to evolve. We're going to see, but I think people paying attention is a good thing. I think the fact that there is a specific outlet from Kotaku reporting on this that covers esports is great. I know that Polygon has their own Overwatch-specific channel that does a lot of opinion and, and news coverage of, um, of Overwatch. ESPN is covering esports. Like We're getting a lot of coverage, so there is visibility, so hopefully that will translate into accountability as well. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Well, uh, Shelby, I, I think that does a pretty good job of covering the article. I did want to uh, ask you one other thing, though, if that's all right. Yes, I do love the Valiant with my whole heart and soul. Okay, that's good. Uh, then I, in that case, I have one other other thing oh, to okay. ask you sure, about. Sure, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. So uh, recently, E3 came and went, and we did a pretty exhaustive discussion of the different press conferences in our last episode, but I did want to get your feeling on any uh, games that you saw that kind of stood out to you. Yeah, I think, um, so some of the things that stood out, not at all surprises, um, but some there's definitely little bits and pieces that I was very excited, excited about. There are definitely little bits and pieces I was very excited about. Um, the first, and I think the thing that I am the most, most hyped about, is The Last of Us Part Two, um, which... Thanks to the E3 trailer, to me, it looks like some two people went to Naughty Dog, and at the same time, one yelled, make it gay, you cowards, and the other one yelled, make it violent, you cowards, and that's the game that came out, and I am so here for that. I am so here for Grown Up Ellie. I am so here for the fact that you only have, or you only play as Ellie. You don't play as any other character, so we don't have to play as Joel. Um... I'm so intrigued with the story. I am de- preemptively disturbed by the original teaser that we got, and also parts of the other trailer. Um, I love this maintaining ethos, um, and I think that they execute this better sometimes than like The Walking Dead and other properties do, that in a zombie apocalypse, the worst, the scariest, the most terrifying, cruel, hateful, worst part of that are people. Um, but also... They are not cowards. They did indeed make it gayer, and I'm very excited about that. Um, also, it looks absolutely beautiful. The gameplay sections of the trailer from E3 don't look like gameplay. I'm so excited. Um, that is number one by a, a huge, huge long shot. Um, a second one is a huge nostalgia throwback for me, but it is creating a lot of dissonance, so I cannot wait to hear more. And I know there's some controversy around it as well. Um, and that is Beyond Good and Evil 2. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've talked about this uh, on the podcast at some point. But um, one of the formative games for me back in the day on PlayStation was Beyond Good and Evil. There was something remarkable about the structure of the story, the protagonist, the way she looked, um, the fact that she wasn't sexualized, the, the tenor of the combat, the kind of story that they told. Um, the emotion she was allowed to feel, the mechanics that were involved. I just, I loved the game. Uh, so we got a trailer for the new one. And it is, so when I say it's a lot of like dissonance, it's really disconcerting because the new trailer is absolutely stunning. It is beautiful. It is one of the most gorgeously rendered um, 
engine, I think it's an engine trailer, but not, it's not a um, gameplay trailer. It's some of the best stuff I've seen. But the old game is so old that thinking about them being in the same universe is insane because it is very polygon, like, very flat polygons. It looks like an old Tomb Raider game, essentially. A little bit better, but it looks like that. Uh, so to see these gorgeously rendered down to, like, the pores and the minute facial expressions, seeing, like, uh, seeing Paige the pig as, like, a very realistic anthropomorphized pig is very disorienting. But that having been said, it looks gorgeous. The protagonist, I think, looks amazing. I don't know what's going on. I'm so hyped. It is a prequel, actually. So they listed as two, but it is a prequel, I believe, um, to the first one. Oh, the hype is real. I'm so excited. Awesome, awesome. Um, I am cautiously optimistic. Um, there's a couple games that came out that I think look really cool. I don't know if they're going to be my jam, per se, but I am happy that they exist. And a good example of that is, uh, of course, one of the biggest pieces of hype from E3, and that is Cyberpunk 2077. Um, I love the lore. I love the aesthetic. I'm not sure I'm going to love the game itself. But I have been diving in, um, actually, thanks to my favorite Overwatch uh, lore YouTuber, who is a huge lore fan of a lot of different properties and played a lot of the original RPG. Um, so he's really into the lore, so I've been kind of digging in and learning some of the bits and pieces because I have not played the original um, Cyberpunk 2022. Um, so I, I, I'm interested in it. It looks beautiful. I am cautiously optimistic. I want to learn more. But I'm, op I'm so excited it exists in the way that it looks and the sort of world that it is in that even if I don't care about the gameplay at all, I'm just still really excited it exists. <laughs> and I want to just kind of stare at it with big puppy dog eyes and be happy it's there. Um, I... Oh, I saw a trailer for this indie game called... Or a smaller game called Sable. Yeah. Sable. I have never seen a game that looks like it before. Um, it is... So hard to describe art style wise. Like reminds me a little bit, a little bit of like Journey. It's Journey adjacent, but more line heavy and lighter colors, kind of, but not really. Um, you know what it almost reminds me of, and I mean this as a descriptive compliment, not as a bad thing. <laughs> Did you ever play with the photo booth on MacBooks back in the day? One of the ones that you would do is one that would like outline the outlines of your face in this neon and then shade it in other ways. So the outlines of everything in the picture were very stark in comparison to the filler of the picture. Did you ever see anything like that? Uh, no, never. I'll have to give you a reference. But the this, the outlining is really bold in the game. It's um, you know it's black, it's thin lines, but it's very bold, very kind of geometric, um, stylized. But you are exploring an alien desert and presumably going on sort of a journey of self-discovery. I don't know a ton about the plot, um, but it looks like it is going to be a um, an adventure-y, platformery, puzzle-type game. And it looks... Like, I, I put on the trailer to sort of half-watch briefly while I was looking for other stuff, and I found myself completely sucked into staring at the entire trailer because it was unlike anything I had seen. So beautiful. I'm loving the risks and the new places that... Um, a lot of these kind of indie makers and folks are taking games too. Um, they're willing to make things that aren't just rendered down to every poor, perfect human hair. They're willing to take risks in other ways. 
and either allow that support or get out of the way of the storytelling and the mechanics that they're putting forth, which I I love. I did not hear about Sable much. I was looking at kind of wrap-ups. I saw that, and it totally blew my mind. There's a couple of things, like, generally that I'm interested in or excited about. Death Stranding, I have no idea what's going on with that game. Good old Kojima. I don't, I don't know. Secretly, it's Silent Hills. I don't know what's happening. I just want to learn more. I don't want to play it. I just want to learn more about Norman Reedus and his weird river that he walked through. Um, Fallout 76, I have yet to be grabbed by a Fallout game, but the prospect of the open world and interacting with people is fascinating to me. And also, given my it is my ancestral home for at least a significant <laughs> chunk of my family, I'm very excited that it's set in West Virginia. Um, there is so much that they can do with like the cryptids in West Virginia and the beautiful mountains and the all the land I'm just I'm so hyped about it being in West Virginia. Um, so I might try to pick it up just to see. Uh, my friend Pedro looks insanely weird. I don't understand this weird slow-mo side scrolly shooter situation and there's a banana. It's very confusing. Um, but it looks fun. Um, and finally we're getting we got a release date for We Happy Few, which I have been following for a really long time. Um, which if you have not seen is a uh, Clockwork Orange-esque dystopian sort of survival platformer horror adventure narrative game um, set in a dystopian um, England where everyone is very happy outwardly. It's very twisted and you have to sort of get through and survive. Um, the It taps into a very small but loud side of me that likes that sort of like twisted dark dystopian thing. Um, and I'm that I, I you know what it reminds me a lot of some of the most interesting parts of Bioshock One, of some of the most twisted but sane people from there. So I'm very that excited I can get about behind. That. that I'm excited about as well. The art style is neat. I don't know. I, I've seen some of the sort of perspective beta gameplay. Looks interesting. But I'm happy that I feel like I've been waiting for this game and hearing about it for a really long time. I'm so happy that we finally have an August release date. I believe it's August at least, an August release date. So I think that's it. That's it. Yeah, I think that's all I, that's all I have on my list. Um, I don't know if there's anything that maybe in retrospect, now that we've had some time that you've looked at that either you missed or whatever, that you would want to toss in as well. Uh, I had also thought of a, a Sable, and mm -hmm. that, that looked pretty awesome. I uh, There was this game called Indivisible. Okay. It's being made by the developers behind Skullgirls, which is this 2D Ooh. fighting game, but it's uh, vastly different. It's an RPG and it looks really, really good. And the combat mechanics look pretty nice, where you've got, like, your four party members, and you're controlling them with, like, simultaneously with, like, different button commands. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of want to know more. It's not going to be out until 2019, which is kind of uh, tamping down my enthusiasm. Sure. But once it's out there, uh, I would really like to give it a look. Uh, Desert Punk which is a kind of very pixely bike racing game that I, I backed on Kickstarter, and I was able to play a demo of it recently. Oh, cool. But uh, they, it was at E3, and it got some good buzz there too, I think, and it still looks really good. So uh, we'll be keeping our eye out for that as well. Yeah. Oh, Neocab. I totally forgot about Neocab. Did you see that trailer? That's the one, uh, your last human cabbie? Yeah, like the cel-shaded, cyberpunky crime-solving hacker cab driver. Yeah. Everything is, like, pink and purple. 
I'm so excited. That one looks very good as well. Again, I don't know if I'm going to be super into the gameplay, but I could just stare at it all day long. Well, let's not stare at it all day long. Let's uh, let's wrap this podcast, and then uh, we can go home, and then we can stare. Then we can stare, right. That makes sense. Uh, so, Shelby, thank you so much for coming on, as always. Finger guns. Shelby, if you, if you want people to find you, either electronically or in person, where can they find you? Um, at the corner of... No, I'm just kidding. Um, on Instagram and Twitter, I am Shelby underscore Fawn. I've been on Twitter a lot more lately. A lot less original tweets, though. A lot more of sort of commenting and jumping in discussions and retweeting such. Um, but if you're interested in the weird workings of my mind, it's a great place to start. Okay. Well, as for us, we can be reached by email at somebytbitspodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. We're so many bits on there. Follow us on Twitter and Tumblr at so many bits. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Please rate and review or download from Spreaker, from SoundCloud, from YouTube. We play games, twitch.tv slash so many bits, Wednesdays and Thursday nights, 8 p.m. Central Time. Wednesday usually for Magic the Gathering Online, Thursday for more of a potpourri of different games. And last but not least, please check out the rest of the Second Wind Collective for other quality podcasts. Support. We're proud of you, because kings and knights.